To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries, where you can find photos of the Galset Rocket Trio and links to our other free podcasts, The Griffith Park Murder Mystery and Alien L.A. Welcome back to the Los Angeles Mysteries radio program. On our third episode of The Rocketeer and the Magician, we bring to you the turning point in the tragedy of Jack Parsons, whose mysterious and untimely death might have been the result of a tragic accident, a suicide, homicide, or even a government conspiracy. Until now, Jack has mostly managed to succeed in getting what he wants. He needs friends. Ed, Frank, and other Suicide Squad members join his ranks. No such thing as rocket science? To hell with that. He fancies that adorable older girl at the bar. He marries Helen a few years later. How about a family and a community? The Agape Lodge and Aerospace step in for that. But for the first time, it appears Jack may have bit off more than he could chew. As he desperately tries to balance favor between his rocket pals and agape buddies, and moderates the growing tensions between lodge leader Wilfred Smith and order founder Alistair Crowley, all while hoping to keep things at home with Helen and her sultry little sister Betty, just peachy keen. But first, we begin at Aerojet with a little riddle that made Jack Parsons famous in the rocket science community. It's a question of substance. Act three, the incarnation. Jack wasn't schizophrenic, but he had two domains which he loved. One was rocketry, where the dream was tangible, where the magic was not resorted to. Then he had a second compartment in his mind where magic fascinated him. As far as I can remember, talking to him about calculations on rocket design, there was no input from what you might say alchemy or magic. In other words, he functioned in compartments. Question. What do you get when you cross a solid with a liquid? As the war in Europe rages on, the army ups its order for solid fuel rockets. By this time, the team has already tested model black powder rockets, which proved solid fuel's ability to outperform liquid. They also wrecked several buildings at Caltech with their explosive experiments. Much of their government funding lost to repairs, but they managed to launch America's first rocket-assisted fixed-wing aircraft. Though the FBI bars colleague Chan Chusen from returning to the project on national security grounds, Galsit is provided with a small crew from the Works Progress Administration. The team's current conundrum is to find a replacement for black powder rocket motors. Jack has already developed 52 new formulas for rocket fuel, but still has this main problem. The jet-assisted planes keep exploding. And without surmounting the risk to pilots and equipment, the team fears an end to their army research budget. Liquid fuel 
is known to be too volatile to work with, so the military specifically requests the higher-performing solid-fuel rockets. But no matter how small a powder is ground and how tightly it's packed together, solids always leave air pockets. Air pockets lead to irregular and uneven ignition. Irregular ignition means... So, what do you get when you cross a solid with a liquid? On one afternoon, while walking to the test site, Jack spies some workmen atop a roof and is suddenly struck by a familiar smell. Something harsh and chemically that transports his mind to Sparta, 429 BC. Byzantine sailors shoot strings of liquid flame from their galleys and rain inextinguishable hell down upon the Saracens. This horrifying chemical weapon remains mysterious to modern scientists and historians, who know it only as Greek fire. Some have suggested quicklime or sulfur as the potential culprit. Others believe a better candidate is the same dark, tarry substance Jack watches the workmen use to line the roof. Why not get rid of black powder altogether and use asphalt as fuel? Jack Parsons immediately gets to work on what he would call Galsit 53, the world's first cement fuel. Its practical, risk-free nature will solidify Jack's place among the jet propulsion founders. Frank Molina calls it one of the most important discoveries in the long history of solid rockets. Even booster rockets on today's 21st century space shuttles are designed after some of Jack's inventions. And so many modern castable space fuels have stood on the shoulders of Galsit 53. This is the story of how Jack Parsons exploded. A self-taught chemist, rocket innovator, and co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Labs, who finds his nights dedicated to strange body meetings and black magic. His odd life and mysterious death are investigated over the course of the next five episodes. Today, dabbling more and more in drugs and sex magic and less in rocketeering and being a loyal husband, the elements in Jack's life begin a chain reaction. Can Jack hold on to his rocket research reputation, his lodge life, his wife? This is Occult LA. Divorce rate is growing even faster than the marriage rate. We may well ponder over the significance of the climbing divorce rate, which may indicate a weak spot in our moral fiber. People should marry for convenience and agree to go their separate ways without jealousy. A detestable institution, one of the most idiotic and bestial pieces of vanity in human psychology. Jack's wife, Helen, is meek and quiet. 
Her half-sister, Betty, is proud, spunky, and spirited. Helen, a lanky brunette. Betty, a supple, graceful, 17-year-old blonde who often shared, teasingly, that she had lost her virginity at the age of 10. In the summer of 1941, Helen arrives home in Pasadena from a well-deserved vacation with her mother. She walks through the front door and discovers her half-sister dressed in her clothes, romping around like she owns the place. Betty is up to her old tricks again. This was a common fight growing up. Ten years her junior, the little brat would wear Helen's handmade dresses as if she had owned them, almost just to taunt her older sister. They never got along. Even when Helen had revealed her stepfather's abuse, Betty was callous, giving her an I-don't-see-the-big-deal attitude. But somehow, this is more. This isn't just her rugrat sister playing dress-up anymore. The two had begun an affair. Betty proudly declares herself Jack's new wife. Everything is my fault, my own mess. I did it deliberately, and I would do it again. My own husband? In my own house? With my own sister? I prefer Betty sexually. Well, this... This is a fact that I can do nothing about. No. I am better suited to her temperamentally. Ah! Your character is superior. You are a greater person. I doubt that she would support me as well. Perhaps because of finances, social pressures, or the teachings of Thelema, Helen opts to stay with Jack through the infidelity and begrudgingly allows the affair to continue. This crass honesty and whim-chasing is encouraged in the Agape Lodge, and soon after Jack's affair, Helen begins a tryst with the Lodge leader, Wilfred T. Smith. Jack, far more comfortable with the open lifestyle, highly approves of this relationship and still regards Smith as a father figure. But major waves are created in the Winona Avenue house, and the old guard disdains the loose activity, led by the lodge priestess, Regina Call. Particularly pertaining to sex before going up to mass. The older congregants plot to wrestle control back from the younger membership. Before this, Regina had been Wilfred Smith's lover, and the new arrangement infuriates her most. By 1942, Wilfred only shares his bed with Helen and announces that she will take over the role of head priestess. Regina goes ballistic. Call started the damn lodge with Smith. She keeps the goddamn place running. But Jack's charisma and public speaking ability have slowly led to his coordinating the lodge activities more and more, and he makes an offer to help expand and assist the congregation that nobody can refuse. Believing membership will soon explode and hoping to spend more time with the order, Jack finances a transition of the lodge from Winona Avenue 
to a stately home on his childhood street of Orange Grove in Pasadena. Though the elder members resist the move at first, they are almost immediately allured by the new building and grounds. Even one of the most traditional followers, Jane Wolfe, who lived and smoked opium with Crowley back in Sicily, finally gives up and moves in along with Regina Call, Jack, Betty, Helen, Wilfred, and the other paying members. Parsons nabs at depression market price a large craftsman-style house with a carved fireplace, grand library, and lavish terrace where future Gnostic masses will be held. By the end of the year, this new Agape Lodge, with six bedrooms and six bathrooms, detached garage, wine cellar, and more, gains 40 new members and will be the only OTO temple to survive the Second World War. The Pasadena residence comes to be affectionately known as the Parsonage. Back at Aerojet, the boys are having difficulty mixing and supplying Jack's new fuel at the rate the army demands. Jack couldn't make it to the christening of his home. He's a business owner now and founding member of Aerojet's JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, along with Frank Molina and Ed Foreman. He's convinced Ed to join the temple, but Molina still resists. So the project keeps growing, and it appears buildings are sprouting straight from the desert floor to accommodate the expanding crew. Whereas not long ago a handful of us worried about all the problems, now each problem has a handful to worry about it. Jack uses his free time to fuel himself with cocaine and other drugs. He flirts with the young female secretaries on site and pranks safety inspectors by placing smoke bombs or small explosives around the arroyo and detonating them. His behavior is a statement to the new authority. The project may have full government respectability, but this is still adolescent Jack's playground. All the way across the pond, Alistair Crowley corresponds directly with Jack, informing the disciple that the distribution of Crowley's newest text, Liber Oz, will be his personal responsibility. The great beast sincerely thought this new text could draw in a large California crowd. But showing some apprehension toward promoting a text with the blatant declaration, man has the right to kill. Jack has the congregation remove every copy in the house. His concern proves prescient. Not long after, the FBI comes knocking. They've received a letter stating the group at the house practices black magic and sex perversion. The Bureau accepts a tour of the premises 
and asks Parsons what the members discuss at the home. Philosophy, religion, personal freedom, and the mysteries of life and eternity. The agents in black find nothing worth charging, but begin an extensive file on the, quote, love cult. Crowley has eyes and ears on his followers in California by way of a covert correspondence with loyal members like Jane Wolfe and his treasurer and second-in-command, a German disciple dubbed Frater Saturnus. Saturnus is in charge of collecting membership dues and relaying to Crowley the state of affairs in his American sect. Since the move to Orange Grove, the Agape Lodge hasn't held a mass once. Saturnus is incredibly disturbed by the order's new direction and the negative attention from the feds, writing to Crowley to say as much. I am getting hot under the collar. I can't even type straight. It burns me up to see the order and all that it stands for represented as a 7th Avenue social club with who slept with whom vying with drunk exhibitionism as a topic of the moment. I am no prude, but neither do I care for obscenity and vulgarity in my sexual life. Nor do I think it is a good foundation on which to build a stable, virtile lodge of the order, do you? Crowley had seen his Los Angeles lodge as a primary way to bankroll his religion. In fact, part of the reason he is so encouraging of Jack's ascent in the order is his belief that the Pasadena rocket scientist would not only bring his own wealth and status to the group, but would be a conduit for even more wealthy followers. But under its current leadership, cash had not flowed in as expected. The Great Beast sees only one solution to his problem. Jack's surrogate father, Wilfred Talbot Smith, is commanded by Crowley to step down as leader. Jack and Helen are startled by the order and quickly draft a letter. Remember, we have a hard job. Cannot long afford to lose Wilfred. Things have developed well. Do not believe everything you hear. Love and trust, Jack and Helen. In an effort to sew Smith into the fabric of the lodge, Jack and Wilfred start a weekly Thelemic publication titled The Oriflame. One of Crowley's informants sends him a copy of the first issue. The beast flips to the centerpiece, a poem by Jack. I hight Don Quixote, I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. I never knew sadness, but only a madness that burns at the heart and the brain. Jack's trouble is his weakness, and his romantic side, the poet, is at present a hindrance. What could have been better calculated to revive the ancient stories about drug traffic and so on? The Oriflame is scrapped, and Smith is slowly and subtly relieved of duties. Parsons relents. But Crowley isn't satisfied. He wants Wilfred's influence severed from the lodge completely. Alistair Crowley's should be the only mind informing the impressionable Parsons. Waiting patiently, the great beast finds a moment to strike. In April of 1943, 
Helen gives birth to a baby boy. He is named Quen Parsons, though no one doubts he was fathered by Smith. Soon after, a 12-page document arrives from Crowley, titled Lieber 132. 132 is Smith's magician's number. It's a doctrine for Wilfred. Birth of an idea. The simple, the astounding truth flooded the mind of Frater 666 with light. It explains all obscurities. It reconciles all contradictions. We have all of us been blinded by a single misapprehension. Wilfred T. Smith is not a man at all. He is the incarnation of some god. It should be most convenient for him to dwell in the tent or shack, preferably on some remote yet consecrated place. It would be wise for him to cause the mark of the beast to be tattooed upon his forehead or in the palm of his right hand. Also, if he chose, over his heart and upon his mons veneris. Frater 132 should continue to attune himself to the final regiment at once by making a great magical retirement, living alone and seeing no one. It would take some time for Wilfred to warm up to leaving. But eventually, he, Helen, and the child all moved to a small chicken ranch in Barstow. Many times these many years I have speculated as to how and when my turn would come, as it has so many others. Now, it is here. And Jack Parsons is crowned the new king of the Agape Lodge. Just a note from the midst of the vast sea of confusion wherein I dwell. Navy training programs, late tax returns, overdue reports to Aleister Crowley, and of course, Aerojet and its marvelous personalities. Production is six months behind on everything, which is okay, because the engineering releases are two months behind that. You'd better burn this. It was not as close as when we were in the primitive building and everything was new, and they had to work together to get anything done. It became much more formal. For testing, we'd plan the work, and about 10 to 15 mechanics would do the work for us. The jig was pretty much up for the rocket amateurs. By 1944, the war beats on. The Germans are successfully launching V-2 missiles. The Pasadena rocket facility is becoming a primary military interest. Meanwhile, Jack Parsons and Ed Foreman devilishly sneak around the jet propulsion lab, searching for newly acquired vats of highly volatile nitromethane. As the project grows, the founding trio feel themselves losing influence over the day-to-day -day activities, especially the college-less Jack and Ed. To add insult to injury, the Caltech physicist who viciously chewed out Frank Molina six years ago when the boys first proposed a rocket study, he told me that I was a bloody fool. 
that I was trying to do something that was impossible, because rockets couldn't work in space. Dr. Fritz Zwicky is now supervising the Aerojet project. Zwicky had recently ordered the nitromethane to be used as an oxidizer in the rocket fuel. The only problem is, in his extensive experimenting, Jack had already tried nitromethane and discovered it to be unstable and incredibly dangerous. Fritz orders a batch anyway. When the boys find the vats, they ignite them and run for the hills. Zwicky wants nothing more than to kick them off the team, but knows canning the founders would be a step too far. Still, it becomes evident that Parsons and Foreman are slowly overstaying their welcome. Jack would always use this perfume and it wouldn't take a bath, so he had a very strange odor about it most of the time. Jack's drug use has increased. And while the rest of the crew slaves away, he's taken to standing off near launch pits, stomping the ground and chanting a Crowley poem, Hymn to Pan. Thrill with lissome lust of light, O oh man, my man. Come careening out of the night of pan, your pan, your pan, your pan. And he continues to chase secretaries. Zwicky claims he has developed a small but dedicated following among the team members. I mean, all these fantasies about Zoroaster and about voodoo and so on. This is okay. We do that too, in our dreams. But keep it for yourself. Don't start impressing this on poor secretaries. And even early Suicide Squad members, like Apollo Smith, become peeved when Jack and Ed's financial arrangement becomes clear. They're able to authorize their own consulting time. This just doesn't seem right to me. It just seems to me that, well, if they need a little money, they could come in and consult, whether it's wanted or not. The new structure of, well, structure, is just not a formula Jack is used to. He is a free-thinking inventor, not some predictable cog in a wheel. As a final nail in the coffin, the project is sold to the General Tire and Rubber Company. Now, with both military quotas as well as profit margins to meet, Jack and Ed are to be explicitly barred from working with the company. Just over half of Aerojet's shares are given to the tire company for $75,000. Ed sells his portion to Frank for $11,000. It's believed Jack sold his for the same. They were cheated, in a way. 20 years after the sale, Jack's share would be valued at more than $12 million. Today, Jack Parsons is relegated to nothing more than a footnote in the history of rocket science and the Space Administration's only recognition of the man. An impact crater on the dark side of the moon, simply named Parsons. Without his rocket lab to tinker around in, Jack 
looks for a new purpose to dedicate his life to. He's now spending nearly all of his time poring over Crowley's writings, where in a 1917 novel titled The Moon Child, Jack believes he discovers his new calling. Go. Go to America. Find the child of the moon. Jack interprets the text to mean someone is needed to foster the coming of an incarnation of the Thelemic Antichrist, the Moon Child. And Jack decides this is his new life goal. But first, he must find a female companion to agree to be his elemental mate and perform the ritual sex magic. Next time on Occult LA. As temple leader, Jack will expand the lodge, open its doors to new and curious members, and Aleister Crowley's hold on the Hollywood sect grows even weaker. Jack dives deep into the Agape Lodge and begins to experiment in black magic, all with his new roommate and best friend, Elron Hubbard. Written, directed, and voiced by John E. Marino, with additional voices performed by Michelle Miller. Along with autobiographies, George Pendel's Strange Angel and Sex and Rockets by John Carter were invaluable resources. Music, courtesy of archive.org. Theme song by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries.